hear the word of God. A song, a song for the Sabbath day. Good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night on an instrument of ten strings, on the lute and on the harp with harmonious sound. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. O Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up like grass, when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are on high forevermore. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eye also has seen my desire on my enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that as we look into it, that our hearts might be drawn out to you and uh, that uh, you would be glorified with uh, the responses of our minds and of our hearts and of our lips. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I usually don't pay a whole lot of attention to holidays, whether they're religious holidays or secular holidays, and I'm not too keen on the foundations of uh, Labor Day, but I thought, why not? Uh, since this is uh, Labor Day weekend, why not give some perspective uh, on what the work week is all about? And if you look at the small print at the beginning of this psalm, you'll see that the title is A Song for the Sabbath Day. On this Sabbath day, David is offering up his life uh, to the Lord once again. He is devoting what he has done in the past. He's looking forward uh, to the future. And through this psalm, he helps us to readjust our attitudes toward our work and what it means to truly prosper or to tr truly flourish. And if you're discouraged this morning, this is a psalm, I think, that is just dripping with encouragement. Now, there is debate on when the psalm was written, uh, but if it was written by David, um, and Spurgeon and others are absolutely convinced that it was, but if it was written by David, it was written during a time in his reign when he was finding it very difficult to carry out the job of being a king. Uh, there were many who did not like what he was doing, and there are hints in this um, psalm that they had forgotten about all of the incredible sacrifices that David had made, sacrifices of time and of energy, risking his life. He had poured money into the kingdom. And uh, it just seemed like there was very little appreciation for what he had done. And perhaps uh, some of you have jobs that are very similar to this. Seems like your boss just takes you for granted and does not really... I seem to appreciate the fact every day you're going the second mile. You are doing your best uh, for your boss. 
And if that is the case for you, I would encourage you to dig into this psalm a little bit more than we're going to be able to do this morning. But basically, if this is David, David's job appears to not have been very fun at this stage. And I want to take just a little bit of a survey of the chapter. In verses 5 through 7, we see that many foolish and wicked people were flourishing during this time of his reign. So he's going to talk at the end of the, the passage about the righteous flourishing, but right here it just looks like the wicked are flourishing. For example, verse 7 says, When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish. In uh, verses 8 through 11, we see that enemies had appeared on the scene. Now, David has gone into the synagogue, and he is finding refreshment in the Lord. He's learned to have his joy restored. You can see that especially in verses 1 through 4. He was able to see that his job that he was doing was for the Lord. Whether men appreciated it or not, he was doing his job as unto the Lord. His goal in life was really to please God and not to please man. And that's really a perspective every one of us ought to have when it comes to our work or our Sabbath. Uh, to be pleasing the Lord. Now he ends this psalm with a renewed confidence that even though it seems like the wicked are prospering, like they are flourishing, that in reality God has guaranteed that the righteous will flourish. And I want to focus most of my time on verses 12 through 15, on the flourishing of the righteous. Now when we look at this, and especially if you're going through tough times, you might be tempted to think, okay, David's talking about you know, people like priests and uh, people who are in full-time service. They're the ones whom the Lord is choosing to prosper. And so before I actually give an exposition of these last few verses, uh, what I want to do is make it very clear that all Christians are called to full-time service for the Lord. There is no such thing as jobs that are secular and jobs that are serving the Lord. Uh, the Reformed faith has obliterated that sacred secular distinction. It's, it's a total myth. Everyone is called uh, to serve the Lord in their calling and with their calling. Not just in their calling, but with their calling. Okay. So if you're not serving God and you're engineering and you're plumbing or your housework or whatever else, then you're serving the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, those are really the only two options. Um, uh, no other alternatives. And I want you to remember that David, for the most part, most of his work was not strumming on a harp and composing music. He probably had very little time to do that. Uh, most of his work was engaging in not fun administration of the kingdom. There were lots of duties of a king that were not that great. Maybe the fighting part was a little bit fun. Uh, but there were lots of uh, drudgerous aspects to his, his job as well. But he did it all for God's glory, and it was every bit as much service to the Lord as what the priests in the temple were doing at exactly the same time. And so I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, and I want to read a passage that uh, teaches us that even the work of lowly slaves who couldn't choose what calling that they were involved in. Even their work uh, was service to the Lord. And let's begin reading at verse 22. Bondservants, obey 
in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. I want you to notice, he doesn't say, when you're witnessing on the job, you need to do that unto the Lord. No. He says, whatever you do, do it heartily unto the Lord. So if you're a slave out there mowing the master's yard or cleaning uh, the toilet or doing the plumbing, you're to do that as unto the Lord. Taking care of the animals, you know, digging the wells, landscaping, all of it is just as much service to the Lord as my preaching to you uh, is service to the Lord up here in this pulpit. Now, I dare say that Labor Day didn't start with concepts uh, like that. But there's no reason why we can't take these perspectives of labor uh, to ourselves. God was elevating each one of the tasks and the jobs of those slaves to a service to the Lord that would count for eternity. That's exactly what he's saying. Now, those slaves might have been frustrated with the fact that they couldn't do anything uh, except for what the master told them to do. Uh, they're, they're just slaves. But even though they had no choice about their jobs, it says, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Now here is the key point that many evangelicals miss. Your jobs do not take on a status of ministry by witnessing on the job. That's the way some people think, uh, that, okay, that's how you make your, your job to be serving the Lord. You take advantages of, uh, of uh, evangelism. Now, we should be witnessing and evangelizing, but some of the people who witness on their jobs might actually be the worst testimony around because they're doing such a lousy job that the, the boss does not praise God or praise them uh, for the things that they're doing. In fact, some people might actually be stealing from the boss Stealing time when they're engaging in witnessing to their fellow employees. What kind of a testimony is that? If many Christians worked harder and better and concentrated more on serving God to the best of their ability with their work, they might not even need to witness. People would immediately begin asking them a question of the hope that lies within them. So we need to get out of our heads the notion that witnessing is spiritual, but typing is not. That reading your Bible on break is spiritual, but driving the rig uh, the rest of the day is not spiritual. Uh, the genius of the Reformed faith is that it recognized that Scripture elevates all callings, all jobs as service to the Lord. Those jobs do not need to be spiritualized by some activity. The job as a job... Uh, becomes spiritual to the righteous man. So let's keep reading. Verse 23, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Now notice that the reward comes from the labor itself. God's going to reward this servant for mowing the yards well and cleaning the bathrooms well. Okay. Now, if you're an unrighteous uh, uh, Christian, God does not show partiality. I mean, he's addressing Christians, but he, he says, if you're not going to be doing this as unto the Lord, doing it in a righteous way, I'm not going to bless you. He says, look, look at verse 25. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. So don't think that Christians are automatically blessed in their jobs just because they are Christians. 
No, God wants us to work hard, to work well, and when we do so, we will be blessed. And this verse says when we fail to do so, we're going to get in trouble. Why? Because God deals with people without partiality. Uh, When I get to the heart of the last verses of Psalm 92, we're going to be saying that it's not all Christians who are blessed, but it's those who are righteous. In other words, Christians who do their jobs according to God's blueprints. And so God is even-handed. Harvest comes to all according to their deeds. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why Western civilization has been uh, blessed materially more than uh, other nations uh, is because for, to a large degree, uh, the Christian biblical blueprints have uh, permeated society. Uh, we've lost a lot of that, but we're still living on the fruits of that. But don't buy the, the Labor Day communistic thoughts of class envy. Anyway, Paul goes on in chapter 4 saying, Masters, give your servants, your bondservants, what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So what applies to the servant applies equally to the masters. They too, according to Colossians 4.1, need to ser- see their service, their work, as unto the Lord. And I love this Reformed concept that there is no secular, sacred divide, that everything we do can serve the Lord. Now let me read you one more verse that was written to ordinary Christians who worked in so-called secular work. This one is from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So the value of a business is not simply because it provides money to tithe to the church and keeps the church going. Uh, That's not the value of the church is only a part of God's overall kingdom. And God's vision is that every business take dominion of the earth in a way that glorifies him. And when we are faithful to our task, then our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Colossians says, do it unto the Lord. Not to men, unto the Lord. And in this Sabbath psalm, and we're going to turn back to Psalm 92, David has his perspective on work upgraded once again. And um, he's refreshed, and he's ready to go out into another uh, work week with a confidence that God will make him to flourish. I didn't have time to do up uh, outlines yesterday, but hey, this is going to be super easy. Very brief, five points, and each of the points is a question. I'm going to be asking this, um, this text. First question is, who can flourish? Flourishing is not automatic for Christians. If you look at verse 12, it says, The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. Notice it doesn't say that all Christians shall flourish. It doesn't say that all who profess to be righteous shall flourish. It is righteousness that leads to a flourishing Christian life. And when we do not pursue after righteousness, all of our achievements will end up uh, as dust. But I think he especially has in mind that we as Christians are pursuing the biblical blueprints and how we do what we do. That's what righteousness is. It's conforming our lives to the blueprints of God's law. And it teaches us how to farm responsibly, how to engage in sales strategies responsibly, how to administrate uh, our work responsibly. 
But let's just bring this down to where the rubber meets the road. You're just at an ordinary business and you don't call the shots a lot and you've accidentally broken something that belongs to the employer. What's the first tendency for many Christians? It's to cover it up, to not want to admit uh, that that is something that you have done because our tendency is to think, if I don't cover this up, I'm gonna I might get fired. I might lose up, but I lose out. That's such a, a short-term uh, and short-sighted uh, perspective. Even though righteousness is harder on the short run, it always produces long-term prosperity. And I think the, the little booklet that some of you have, uh, Going the Extra Mile or Going the Second Mile, I forget what it's titled exactly, but oh, he gives story after story to illustrate how this is true. Third John does not say that you will prosper whether or not your soul is righteous. It says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now just think about that. If God prospered us materially and He prospered us in terms of health to the degree that our soul was prospering, we might actually lose some health and lose some finances because our soul is not prospering. He ties the two together. He wants there to be soul prosperity so he can bless us even more in the other areas of our lives. Now, does that mean that there's always an immediate cause and effect relationship between ethics and flourishing? And of course, you know, that's absolutely not the case. There are times when righteous people get fired for doing the right thing. And I've told you before about my seminary uh, friend. Uh, his wife uh, was um, uh, working in this big medical assembly line, and she had the responsibility of signing off that the quality control that the government mandated had been met. And she said uh, on this one occasion, it has not been met. I cannot sign off on that. And there was a lot of arguing back and forth and the threat, you'll lose your job if you don't do this. And they desperately needed uh, the income. But she did the right thing and she was fired. Now, people might say, here's a person's doing the righteous thing and God has promised that they're going to flourish. Ah, what's happened? There is no flourishing whatsoever there. But you know what? In the long haul, she actually ended up getting a much better job, but in the long haul, this woman had a reputation that you could trust her word no matter what. Um, and her, her um, testimony was certainly flourished uh, in a far greater way than if she had lied and gotten a promotion. There are times when a Joseph gets thrown into prison through no fault of his own. But did Joseph, over the whole course of his life, prosper? Yes, he did. He did. There are times when an apostle Paul is beaten to within an inch of his life, but whether you look at that short time that Saul lived on earth, and by the way, he was prospered incredibly, uh, probably more than any other person, the influence he had upon planet earth is just astonishing. But people look at how he got beaten, and he didn't have money, and... And, you know, he died, he gets martyred. But whether you look at the time that we have here on earth or whether you look at the dividends that we are storing up in heaven, there is a payback. There is a payback uh, for being righteous. And let me just read you some of the scriptures that, uh, that demonstrate this. Psalm 37, verse 25 says, I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. 
That's Psalm 37, verse 25. Psalm 72, 7, speaking of the Messiah, he says, In his days the righteous shall flourish. Proverbs 10, verse 6, Blessings are on the head of the righteous. Psalm 5, verse 12, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. Do you believe that? Sometimes it takes faith to believe that because it just seems when you're looking around you that it may be the exact opposite. And if you have a hard time believing it, I would encourage you, if there are any CDs left, um, to pick up the CD that goes through the, uh, the, the sermon series called The Christian and Prosperity, I believe was the name uh, of the series. There is always a connection between sowing to the Spirit, that's righteousness, and what we will reap in life and in eternity. Now, it seems like almost everything that Joseph's hands touched was prospered. Did he have setbacks? Yes. But it's like God was blessing the work, the labor of his hands. You see the same thing with Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and others. And this is what I love about Deuteronomy. It's so black and white in terms of cause and effect universe that God has established for us. If you are a sinner, eventually you will reap what you have sowed. Okay? Though you may flourish for a while, and verse 7 talks about that, eventually the righteous will inherit the wealth of the wicked. Now sometimes it does appear to be the exact opposite, and there's an entire psalm that's written for that. And when you're feeling down in the dumps, you can sing that psalm. It's Psalm 73, written by Asaph, who tells us that he looked around him and he's so frustrated. Lord, how come the wicked are prospering and I'm not? I, I, I've devoted my life to you, and, and I'm really frustrated by this, this inconsistency here. And I think most of us uh, have experienced that feeling from time to time. It's why it takes faith to believe this message. But in Psalm 73, verses 16 through 17, he says, It was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. In church, he began to realize he was not looking far enough in the future uh, in terms of these laws of harvest. Shortcuts and evil may appear to make you flourish short-term, but it always catches up with you. And I think this is a lesson that the labor unions need to, uh, to, to, to learn. Uh, if they want to flourish, it shouldn't be through strikes and threats and intimidation. Okay, take a look at verse 7. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. So in the final scope of things, God's people are prospering, and it's really the wicked who are hanging by a thin thread over hell. Now, they may feel like they're prospering the whole time. They're hanging over the pit of hell. But God says in the whole scope of things, they're not the ones prospering. It's Christians who are the ones who are prospering. And so that's why we should feel sorry for them rather than envying them. Not a thing that the unbeliever plants will lead to eternal prosperity. Not one thing. In contrast, absolutely everything you do can, has the potential of lasting for eternity. It has that potential. It gives back dividends. Even though we may do many of the, uh, the same things that unbelievers do, the difference is that our work counts for all of eternity and their work counts against them. And Mark 10, I've preached on that a number of times in the past, Christ guarantees that there is no one to whom 
he has given everything. Now, none of us are 100% giving God everything. We try to be, and then we subtly take back, you know, from time to time here and there. We say, okay, sorry, Lord, and we give it back to him again. But he said, there's no one who gives God, everything to God, who forsakes everything with relationship to his, his spouse and his children and his house and his lands, who will not get back 100-fold. And he says, now in this time, and he lists the same things we've given up. He'll give back 100-fold in terms of lands and, and um, children and our relationships to our, our wives and our husbands and things like that. And then he says, even more in eternity. Now that's pretty cool. If we're getting back a hundredfold in this life and even more in the life to come. So again, it's not an either-or situation. Uh, it doesn't matter how much there come in those thorns that are trying to choke out what God is producing in our lives. We're going to be like these righteous trees planted and able to go through thick and through thin. Now, do we believe that? Do we believe God will prosper the righteous? Or do we take those shortcuts? Uh, I think most who celebrate Labor Day don't, but we do need to have a different perspective on labor. So, if God causes the righteous to flourish, the second question is, where do they flourish? Is it just in the church? Is it in our devotions? Is it in our families? No, it's everywhere. He causes us to flourish everywhere. Notice the illustrations that are used in verse 12. Righteous are compared to two trees, to the palm tree and to the cedar tree. And anywhere you went in Israel, you could find one of those two trees. In the lower uh, land areas, lots of palm trees. In the high mountains, you would see these, uh, these cedars. And um, true believers, I think the illustration is, can prosper and they can flourish in all places as well, whether we're at home, at work, in the nursing home, doesn't matter where we may be. Uh, God makes us flourish like the palm tree and like the cedar. Now in verse 13, he adds another image of smaller trees planted in the courts of the temple. And I didn't uh, remember that there were actually live trees right within the temple grounds. But it says, those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. In other words, it doesn't really matter what your calling is. If you're a priest who's been planted in the temple, God will make you flourish there. If you are a person who's working outside of Israel in Lebanon, he can make you flourish there. If you're in the desert portions of Israel, he can make you flourish there. Okay? Too often, Christians long to be in places that God has made it providentially impossible for them to be, and they're not content with the spot that God has placed them. Too often, Christians grow bored and tired with their work, and they think, man, if I could have a different job, man, I could glorify God in that job. If I could have a different job, I would do this to the Lord with gladness and faith. They want to escape to another place so that they can flourish, and they've not learned that God can make them to flourish in their present location. Uh, one of the things that uh, struck me when I was in um, Prairie Bible Institute was a missionary who came through and he says, please don't send us your missionaries who are looking for excitement and adventure and are bored with life over here. We don't need them. He said, please don't send us your missionaries who think that they're going to have success on the mission field, but they've had no success in evangelism over here. We don't need them. He said, are you prospering right where God has placed you right now? And that stuck with me uh, even to this day. 
change is what's going to make the difference, is the way many people think. And God is saying, no. If you're not learning to trust me to see flourishing and prospering in your desert situation, your work now, then you're not even learning the principles that are going to enable you to flourish when a change comes. So we need to learn to flourish now so that we will prosper all the rest of our days. So it's uh, spiritual prosperity is dependent not on location, but upon Christ. Third question, when do we flourish? Verse 2 says every morning and every night. Verse 13 indicates it's when we're new in the Christian faith. Verse 14 indicates when we're old in the Christian faith. And I especially like verse 14. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. So the righteous can flourish in all seasons. And I think even the figures of those trees, because they're both evergreen trees, right? Uh, I think uh, illustrates that. And they produce fruit throughout their lives. Uh, for many, many years. In fact, I, I read, and Joel probably will correct me on this, but I read that um, uh, some of the best dates come from the palms that are between 30 and 100 years old, and they can bear up to 300 pounds a year uh, of dates during those years. Now, the cedar is also a tremendous picture of flourishing in all season because they can grow to tremendous ages, um, there were some ancient Jews that said that the cedars in Lebanon grew to 3,000 years old. I'm very skeptical of that. I'm not even sure if it's possible, and I don't know how they would know that they're 3,000 years old. But the ones that are in Lebanon that have survived have been dated uh, to about 1,000 years old and about 40 um, feet in circumference. Now, I think these were the best images David could use to indicate Age is not a factor that should hinder us in flourishing. In fact, the older you get, the more you ought to flourish because you've got that much more experience under your belt. You've learned how to depend upon the Lord uh, that much more. Paul says, now thanks be to God, get this, who always causes us to triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. Do you believe that? Or is your perspective like the typical labor union that envies the place of the boss and is constantly striking for more? Fourth question. Under what circumstances do the righteous flourish? So we've looked at who can flourish, when they can flourish, where they can flourish, and here's under what circumstances can they flourish. And the answer is under all circumstances. Palm tree face drought and the blasting sand of the desert. The cedar faced the storm, snow, and the frost of the mountaintops, and they didn't just survive, they throve. Is that a right word? They thrived. They prospered. That's the right word, I know, uh, in those conditions. David was facing all kinds of uh, adverse circumstances as well, and yet he experienced the presence of the Lord enabling him to flourish. Look at verses 10 through 11. But my horn you have exalted like a wild ox, I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eye also has seen my desire on my enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. When the oil of the Holy Spirit anoints us for our jobs, we can flourish with or without the aid of man. We can flourish spiritually even when we are tired and lonely and 
experiencing pain in our bodies, facing frustrating decisions under attack from others. And the reason for this is God has tailor-made you and He has tailor-made your circumstances to guarantee that, as Paul words it, all things work together for the good of those who love Him, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Romans 8, verse 28. All things, the pleasant and the unpleasant. So when Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, it sure didn't seem like this was going to be anything working together for his good. And yet Joseph had such a confidence in God that his faith kept him through. And even at the end of his life, he t tells these people, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. Perspective like this enabled Paul to say in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you say that about the trials and the tribulations that you face at your work? And a lot of you have that. You, you've got your discouragements. And it may be discouragements at home or in other places. Many times we are tempted to wish that our circumstances could improve so that we can serve God better. Now, there is an element of truth to that. If we're serving God well to, to the maximum of our capacity, then the prayer of Jabez makes perfect sense. Lord, expand my borders. I want to uh, influence your kingdom even more. But if we're not serving Him well now, why do you think it's going to guarantee you will serve Him better if God improves your circumstances? Okay, we have to learn to flourish where we are right now so that God can expand your borders. Christ told Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. So it is when we admit to God our weaknesses that He demonstrates most gloriously His strength. It's when we stop trying to do things our way and stop wrestling with God. In fact, I still remember your sermon of uh, Jacob wrestling with God and Peniel, uh, uh, Rodney. That, that whole thing of trying to control life, and you alluded to something similar today in your talk. When we quit doing that and we begin to trust and we do things God's way, then we don't have to face life and job and situation with hopelessness. Paul's response to Christ was, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, I'll grant it is difficult to do our jobs to God's glory, to do our jobs in faith, to do our jobs with all our might, to do it as if we were doing it for Christ. It's difficult to do that. I mean, we many times don't even have God in our minds during the day, and we think, oh, yeah, I should have been doing that as unto the Lord's glory. That's why I say we need God's grace even for our jobs. We don't just need grace for Sunday. We need His grace for everything that we do, right? So our version of Labor Day should be utterly different than the world's version of Labor Day. And this brings us to our last question. Why do the righteous flourish? And there are three reasons implied here. And the first reason is given in verse 15, and that is that the righteous have a God-centered purpose in their jobs of glorifying God. Okay? Well, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense because James says that God puts down the proud, but He lifts up the humble. He gives more grace to the humble. 
So what is the reason that we have jobs? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And when we have that perspective, God makes us flourish. Now verse 14 ends with a comma, not a period. And so let's pick up the last clause of verse 14. They shall be fresh and flourishing. Now here comes the the God-centered goal. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in Him. Everything that happens in life should be with the desire to glorify God, to point to Him. So we should be willing to take a loss if God would be glorified. We should be willing to take a fabulous raise from work, uh, not just because it brings pleasure to us and it's pleasant, but, Lord, we want to even expand the way in which we use these finances to finance your kingdom and to advance your cause and to have uh, covenant succession, whatever the ways that you're seeking to glorify God. <clears throat> this is perhaps the, the hardest lesson to learn, to say with Job, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But if we first and foremost have an attitude that we're looking to serve God in our jobs and through our jobs, we're in a position to be blessed. Okay, the second reason is that the righteous experience the reality of God's power and grace. Our testimony must be to know experientially that God is our rock, verse 15. Uh, David experienced God's power in verse 10. Uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the same verse. Uh, he experienced joy in the face of terrible circumstances in verses 1 through 4. Only God could give David the kind of joy that he was experiencing at that point. Uh, verse 4 speaks also of victory of faith. It, spe it speaks of experiencing God working in his life day by day. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. O oh Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. And so David experienced a power and a reality that the foolish were totally oblivious to. That's the second reason he could do this. Finally, it's because David had an unshakable trust in God. David declares in verse 15, The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. He trusted God. God was as trustworthy as the most solid rock that you could find. There is no unrighteousness in him. Numbers 23, 19 through 20 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Now, in that passage... Uh, Balak had tried to get Balaam to curse Israel, and Balaam's response was, Behold, I've received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. It's as simple as that, okay? If God has promised it, there is nothing in heaven or hell or upon earth that can reverse God's promise to prosper you. And hasn't he done that? He has promised to make the righteous flourish. Now, I'm praying that God would prosper every one of you in this congregation, but you need to have the faith to lay hold of it and say, yes, Lord, to your glory. I want to prosper in this coming week. I want to live it to your honor and to your glory. Now, this knowledge does not necessarily take out the drudgery of your work. It does not necessarily remove all of the pain, but it did enable David to keep on keeping on even when the slogging was growing a little bit tough. It enabled David to have joy, even when there was no external basis for that joy, 
And it gave David the gumption to change his circumstances rather than seeing himself as a victim of his circumstances. He was very, very active. And so Sabbath by Sabbath, this is a Sabbath psalm, Sabbath by Sabbath, he has his perspective on work upgraded and his thinking realigned. And he once again devotes all of the past week, devotes this coming week to the Lord, as I hope each one of us will do as well. And devoting it to the Lord with the sure confidence that the God who cannot lie has promised to prosper and flourish the righteous. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father God, we thank You for uh, Your Word. We thank You that we can bank upon it. We thank You that no matter what we are doing, at home, changing the diapers, or uh, in the garden, or wherever we may be, that we can do this as unto You, and that You delight in receiving it as an act of love from our hands. This is our desire, Father, to have a constant awareness of Your presence and power, to do it according to Your law word, and Father, to see You prospering and anointing the work of our hands. Bless this, Your congregation. Fill them with joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in order to be able to do all this, we daily need to have the mind of Christ, and we're going to sing a second week in a row, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. Please stand.